This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Good afternoon. We're here today to welcome Dr. Ted Karamansky, Professor of History at Loyola University Chicago, uh, as a part of the One Book, One College program. Uh, relating, of course, to Tony Horowitz's work, uh, Confederates in the Attic. Uh, Professor Karamansky uh, has been a prolific writer, uh, and his work, uh, Rally Round the Flag, uh, examines, of course, Chicago uh, and the impact the Civil War had uh, on that particular city. I'd like to thank, of course, the library as well as Dr. Troy Swanson, uh, the Liberal Arts Department, Dr. Jenkins, of course, the college president, and Dr. Franzik, uh, the Dean of Liberal Arts. Uh, without further ado, Dr. Ted Karamansky. Thanks, thanks Josh, uh, and thank you for coming uh, this afternoon. I'm sure you already had enough classes this morning. <laughs> uh, we'll try to go ahead and uh, uh, make this a little bit entertaining uh, as well as hopefully informative. Uh, 150 years ago, uh, America was locked in the same kind of ugly struggle that you see in a place like Syria today, uh, where the country's divided, uh, the infrastructure is being destroyed, uh, and it looks, if you look, think back to 1863, it looks like there's no end in sight to the, the horror and the destruction uh, that war is bringing. I'm particularly happy to to be at uh, Moraine Valley because not only do I live in the area, <laughs> but uh, I also went to community college myself. Uh, uh, in those days, uh, I was in Chicago, so I went to uh, Daly College, and it was really an excellent start for me to, to begin my uh, 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 college career, and then later on I went to university, but uh, uh, it was a good way to save some money uh, and to figure out exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, and as I figured out what I wanted to do, it turned toward history. And as I got into history, I became very interested in the Civil War. Uh, and when we think of this Chicago in the Civil War, uh, or Chicago in the 19th century uh, in particular, the subject that comes up is the Great Fire, is that this is like the, the great event of Chicago in the 19th century. The fact of the matter is, the south side of Chicago didn't burn at all during, this, during the Great Fire. This was just something that affected downtown and the north side. And just like they always are crying about their cubs, uh, they go ahead and make a big deal about this fire. One thing that I discovered, however, about the fire is that it destroyed so many of the letters and documents and uh, souvenirs that the soldiers brought back from the Civil War. So when we try to understand how something like the Civil War affected Chicago, uh, the fire uh, made it difficult. It, in some ways, erased some of the institutional memory of the city. But you only have to drive around Chicago with your eyes open uh, to get a sense of what the war meant to the people who fought that conflict, to the generation of the Civil War they left us many, many traces uh, on the city's landscape. 
to say to us, this is what was important about our generation. This is what we did for our country. You know, we've got statues of Lincoln in Lincoln Park. We've got statues of Lincoln in Grant Park. We've got statues of Grant in Lincoln Park. We've got statues of General Sheridan, General Logan. There's at least a dozen statues of Lincoln, uh, as well as other generals, around Chicago. We even have statues to the Confederates <laughs> in Chicago. Uh, so the Civil War memory was very important to these people. And the reason was because when this war began, Illinois was in an area of the country they called the Northwest. We were off in the fringe of the country, on the edge of a frontier. But if it hadn't been for the contributions of those states on the fringe, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, uh, Indiana, Michigan, these are the states that saved the Union. These are the states that provided the backbone of the armies that destroyed the Confederacy. And when they came back from that war, they saw themselves and their region different. And after the Civil War, this area is not referred to as the Northwest. It's referred to instead as the heartland. And they saw, them, they saw what they had done as everything that had ever happened in American history that was important had happened in the East. The Revolution, War of 1812, things like that. And after the Civil War, they saw what they had done is they'd completed, they'd rescued the work of the Founding Fathers. And they felt this cemented their contribution, not just in the center of the American economy or the American geography. They saw themselves as being in the center of American history. And that's why we have Grant Park. That's why we have Lincoln Park. That's why we have license plates that say Land of Lincoln today. Because for that generation, this was the, uh, a crowning experience and a coming of age for the region. There are so many memorials to the Civil War in Chicago also because of the fearful cost uh, that was paid by the country. And we're 750,000 Americans dead. That's more than the equivalent of 2% of the population uh, today. We're if it was today, we'd be talking about close to 6.5 million people dead. And in terms of 450,000 widows, close to 200,000, uh, excuse me, uh, 450,000 orphans and close to uh, 200,000 widows. Hundreds of thousands of wounded people who'd lost limbs were haunting the streets of our cities uh, for the next generation. And so the war was a very uh, bitter conflict in which a high price was paid by America. Such a high price that you could combine all the wars that America ever fought before or since, and it would not equal the death and destruction of the American Civil War. And for the people of Chicago, the terrible price that was going to be paid to save the Union and end slavery was made apparent to them in April of 1862 at the Battle of Shiloh. This one battle, which kind of, you know, just burst on the scene, shocking everybody. This one battle cost more Americans their life 
than all the wars that the country had fought up to that time. There was a Confederate politician who said when the war began that this was going to be an easy process of secession and that any of the blood that was spilled, he'd be happy to mop up with his handkerchief. Well, the blood just at Gettysburg, or excuse me, at Shiloh, was such that no one could conceivably mop it all up. And this really affected Chicago and Illinois because such a large percentage of Grant's army, a third of it, were from Illinois. This battle was fought in Tennessee, which was just a day's train ride away on the Illinois Central Railroad. Uh, And when people heard about this conflict, they knew the army was totally unprepared to deal with the wounded. So many of the wounded actually laid on the battlefield for two, three, four, in some cases five days. And it rained most of those days. And the only way those soldiers got off the battlefield is because people came from Chicago as volunteer nurses and took them off the battlefield. Doctors came down and began to tend to the wounded. So there was a close bond between the battlefield and the home front. That's very important in the Civil War. It's a very sad thing uh, for the troops that have fought so long and hard in Iraq, in Afghanistan, that for most Americans, these conflicts are out of sight and out of mind. It's a little background noise on the nightly news. But that wasn't the case in the Civil War because the war was fought in our backyard. And one of the things that happened very early in that conflict is something that happens in all wars. And that is that we were fighting our own citizens, right? Sort of they talked a little funny. (laughs) But they were Americans too. And very early in the war, this process of demonizing the enemy, of of turning the enemy not into one of us, but into another. Uh, And so you began to see publications like the Chicago Tribune printing articles about, oh, Confederate soldiers are going ahead and digging up the bodies of dead Union soldiers and taking their bones and whittling them into souvenirs that they're giving to their girlfriends in the sunny South. They tried to make the argument that slavery, one of the most inhuman practices in American history, had turned the Southerners into barbarians. Uh, and so you can see some of that uh, in, this, uh, uh, in this graphic. And this affected the way Americans, the way Chicagoans, related to people from the South. And this is very well demonstrated at the Camp Douglas Prisoner of War Camp. One of the largest prisoner of war camps in the United States was located on the south side of Chicago. Uh, it was called Camp Douglas. And eventually, uh, there were um, 64,000 Confederates who were incarcerated there during the course of the Civil War. These people had a very miserable time. One of the prisoners there uh, was uh, this fellow here, Henry Stanley. He was a young Welshman who came to the United States Uh, and enlisted in the Confederate Army, even though he'd been only in the country a few months. He later became kind of famous. 
Henry Stanley. Does that ring a bell with anybody? Pardon me? Stanley Steel? No. Like uh, the tool works? Yeah. No. That's a good one, though. Yeah, an earlier generation would have, would have been more onto this, but he became an African explorer, actually uh, someone who was a very brutal colonizer of Africa uh, for the king of Belgium. But he was famous for uh, discovering a lost missionary uh, in, uh, in Africa, and he came across him and he said, Dr. Livingston, I presume, which was a famous quote in the 19th century. But his early experience was in the Civil War, and what he saw at Camp Douglas uh, was awful. He saw so many of his comrades who had come to the camp healthy getting sick, sick with dysentery, sick with typhoid fever, sick with uh, uh, smallpox, and they began to die. And they were carted out of the camp day after day, he said, in the same way like carcasses, are carted into a slaughterhouse. He realized this was not a good thing. And so he became what was known as a galvanized Yankee. He took the oath of allegiance to the United States of America, uh, promised to obey the Constitution of the United States, uh, and became a Union soldier because he felt the only way to get out of Camp Douglas alive was to turn coat. Eventually, there were over 4,000 Confederates who died at Camp Douglas. So there are more Confederates buried in Chicago than on any Civil War battlefield. And they died hungry. They died diseased in the heart of one of the largest cities in the United States, in the food distribution center for the United States. And these conditions prevailed in large part because people wanted to see the Confederates suffer. The Chicago Board of Trade actually petitioned President Lincoln to reduce rations at Camp Douglas so that the men there would suffer more. This was the degree of bitterness that grew up in the war, but it's also a byproduct of that close bond between the soldiers on the home front, the soldiers on the battlefront, and the people at the home front. This is where you can see in that small picture where Camp Douglas is located today. Uh, and it's a, uh, uh, there's a, uh, the Lake Meadows housing complex is there. Last summer, uh, I worked with archaeologists to try to excavate the remains of the camp. And we dug down at the camp headquarters building, and we found what might have been a foundation, but we didn't find much in the way of artifacts uh, from the prisoners or from the guards. And so we're hoping this summer to excavate at another site and perhaps get more in the way of uh, remains. And if you go to Oakwood Cemetery near Cottage Grove and 67th Street on Chicago's south side, you'll see the largest mass grave in the United States uh, where all of these bodies were eventually dumped very unceremoniously. It wasn't until 1890 that they dedicated a memorial to all those Confederates who died in Chicago. Now, fortunately, the war did more than just bring out this sense of bitterness, uh, this desire to punish the enemy. There was also a lot of idealism that was unleashed. 
because this, after all, was a war that could only be sustained by the promise that we would make a new and better America. Uh, and the abolition of slavery, of course, was a big part of that. And so it drew the idealism of many people, very especially uh, uh, a group of uh, women who were involved in something called the Sanitary Commission. And the leader of the Sanitary Commission in Illinois was a woman by the name of Mary Livermore. And in spite of having a very large family, numerous young children, she got deeply involved in uh, war work. Uh, she was anxious to try to help the troops. She went once for a short stint nursing at the front, but she couldn't be away from her family long. So she wanted to do what she could do in Chicago to help them. And uh, when she heard that the Sanitary Commission had run out of money supplying uh, uh, fruits and vegetables to fight scurvy in Grant's army outside Vicksburg, she said she went to the men who were on the board that ran the organization. Because while there were women that actually did the work, the men were in charge. And she went to them and she said, okay, what can us ladies do to get funds for the organization? And they said, well, there's really not too much you can do. Uh, thanks for your offer. And she said, well, look, we, we, we're going to try. Well, what do you want to do? She said, well, well, we'll have like a fair and we'll sell things. And they laughed at her. They laughed at her and said, oh, okay. You know, you know how sometimes the student organizations sell cupcakes or mimosas or whatever for uh, snacks uh, to raise a little money for the organization? They thought this is what she had in mind. But Mary Livermore was a woman of uncommon organizational ability. And so she put together a network of women throughout the Midwest region. She brought representatives to Chicago. She instructed them, we want you to send to Chicago the best products of every town, every county uh, in the Midwest region. And these things began to flow in, as well as donations of money. Soon she had every one of the municipal halls in the city rented where she was going to sell these wares. And she still didn't have enough space for all the stuff that was coming in. So she said, okay, we're going to build a new building. And she had donated lumber and building materials. Uh, so she wrote a contract, uh, and she had these construction workers to build what was then the largest uh, public, ho uh, public hall in Chicago. She went to the construction site then, and she saw the workers just sitting there. She says, oh, guys, this fair is going to be opening up in a few weeks. You've got to get going. They said, we can't work until we have a legitimate contract. I gave you a contract. Yeah, you gave us a contract. You're a woman. You don't have a legal right to sign a contract. So we can't work until you get your husband to sign this contract. Well, Mary Livermore, she chewed her tongue on that one. She thought, okay, one war at a time. She got the husband to sign the contract. They built uh, the hall. Uh, and she went ahead and organized this fantastic thing they called the Northwest Sanitary Fair. And it lasted for several weeks. And people poured into the city to participate there. They had record sales. And in this hall that she had built... She had a food court. She had shoe stores. She had a women's clothing store. She had a men's clothing store. She had a theater. Long before genius, there were geniuses like uh, 
Marshall Field in Chicago. He thought he knew about merchandising. But he didn't get it. Mary Livermore invented the shopping mall. And nobody picked up on it for another century. <laughs> when the fair was over, Mary went to the men of the, who were on the board of the Sanitary Commission. By this time, they'd see what she had done. And they were very happy to see her. They said, well, Mary, uh, what do you have for us? And she gave them a check for $75,000, which in those days was a huge amount of money. Uh, and all they could say to her was, uh, Mary, uh, when can you do it again? And she did organize another fair for Chicago, and she then helped organize other fairs all around the country in all the cities of the north. And they eventually raised over $6 million for the troops, for their medical care uh, of the wounded, uh, and to uh, 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 help soldiers who were recovering uh, from uh, wounds on their way home. They built in Chicago, and you can still see it at 35th Street and Lakeshore Drive, they built something called the Soldier's Home. And for any soldiers who were passing through Chicago who might have a relapse of an illness or a disease, it was a safe place for them to stay, where they could get a meal, they could get a bed, they could stay for months, they could stay for years if they needed to. And she had subsidized all this activity. Now, there's the building... Another one of the people inspired by the changes that, the challenges that the war brought was uh, George Frederick Root. Before the war, he was just a, a publisher of liturgical music, uh, you know, stuff they'd sing in church. But when the war began, he got excited by the energy that he saw in the population and the enthusiasm that he saw among the people. And he began to write songs to encourage the war effort. And his... Uh, Greatest song written for a war rally in Chicago in July 1862 when Lincoln said, hey, we need a lot more troops if we're going to try to win this war. They had to have these big war rallies to get people excited, to get the young men to enlist. He wrote this song called The Battle Cry of Freedom. And in those days when you bring a, you know, a 50,000 people together in an assembly, there was no public address system. So the only way to address large crowds was to set up a variety of speakers' platforms in different corners of the assembly area. And on one of these assembly areas, a group of singers started to sing this song that Root had written for the, uh, 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 for the rally. This song, The Battle Cry of Freedom. And the song was sung there. People in the audience began to sing it. And before the song was completed, everybody, the song had moved around, everybody was singing the chorus of this song. And it's probably the best sing, best-selling single song in American history. This song, this is before they had, some of you may remember, eight-track cassettes or cassette tapes or even those things they used to call CDs. Well before MP3 players. The only way to buy music was to buy sheet music. And this song sold 150,000 copies of sheet music at a time when the population of the North was 20 million people. So this was, there was way more than the people who could read or play the piano, right? Uh, people just wanted this sheet music, just to even have the lyrics. And the song had a big impact on the military. 
It was an important way to raise the morale. And a classic example of this is at the Battle of Stones River. Uh, a battle that is very often forgotten in the Civil War. But in terms of the number of troops engaged, it was the most vicious and uh, deadly battle of the Civil War. Uh, and it was fought on the last day of December and the second day of January, uh, 1863. Uh, cold, cold battle. Cold, cold weather. Uh, and the Confederate troops attacked and attacked and they kept pushing the Union forces, but they refused to retreat. And after all these attacks, the Union army held its ground and the Confederates were forced to retreat. And Lincoln said, if it wasn't for this battle, he thought his government would have collapsed at that time. If he had a defeat. This was after the disastrous defeat at Fredericksburg that the army had suffered. And so now the army in the West, however, had stood their ground and won. And as the Confederates were retreating, the officer in charge of their rear guard looked across the frozen surface of Stones River and he saw the Union campfires. And the soldiers were gathered around the campfires and they were singing this song, we'll rally around the flag, we'll rally around the flag. And he turned to his, uh, his adjutant and the Confederate officer said, I don't think we can beat these guys. We've attacked them through two of the most miserable days we've ever been through. And they're still ready to fight and they're singing they're going to rally around the flag. This idealism of people like Mary Livermore and George Frederick Root, uh, this went ahead and carried on even to, to the next generation. And a classic example of this was a young girl. She was only six years old at the time of the Civil War. On an April day in 1865, she'd been out playing with friends. And she came in to her house and uh, she saw that there was black crepe hanging from the door, which was always a symbol of mourning in those days. And she went into the parlor and in the shadows her father sat with tears streaking down his face. And he put his arm around her and said, Jane, the greatest man in the world has been killed. And that's how she found out about the death of Abraham Lincoln. Does anybody know who that woman is in that picture? Does that look familiar at all? Famous South Sider. Jane Addams. That's right. Jane Addams was just a younger. Her father was a good friend of Abraham Lincoln's. Uh, her assistant, uh, who lay, uh, Jane Addams created Hull House, which was an, uh, a way to help immigrants to America adjust to life in the new country, to help them learn English, to help them learn uh, uh, civics, uh, to help them get jobs. Uh, but she was always inspired by Abraham Lincoln. And Hull House was located where the University of Illinois Chicago campus is today. But whenever she would get discouraged, and she would get discouraged a lot because she had to work with Chicago politicians, and that's no easy job for anybody. Uh, and when she would get discouraged, she would think of Lincoln. And in 1887, they built a statue to Lincoln in Lincoln Park, uh, as you see there. She would walk from Hall House at the University of Illinois Chicago campus to Lincoln Park. So you know she was mad about something <laughs> if she needed to walk that far to, to kind of work it out. But she would go there and she would look up at the statue and she, and she wrote and wrote a biography. You can read it in the library here. Uh, that she saw that Lincoln was the epitome of all that was great and good in America. 
and just looking at his face, thinking about what he had done in his life, was like a refreshing breeze from off of the lake. And it went ahead and gave her the strength to carry on, as she did through her whole life, really helping to, to build a progressive Chicago. Another one of the great features that comes out of the Civil War, of the ideals of the Civil War, is those people who worked in the Sanitary Commission, they wanted to go ahead and make Chicago a better place after the war. And so uh, they got together and they built Chicago's lakefront parks. Jackson Park, Lincoln Park, and Washington Park were all designed by veterans of the United States Sanitary Commission. Frederick Law Olmsted, uh, William LeBaron Jenny, uh, and uh, Ezra McCabe. Now, a lot of guys from our neighborhood uh, also participated in the Civil War and made extraordinary sacrifice. Uh, most of the, the, uh, the people from this part of Cook County served in the 39th Illinois uh, Infantry. And if you've ever seen the movie Glory uh, with uh, Denzel Washington, they show this very awful attack made by the 54th Massachusetts, the, one of the first African-American units in the Civil War. This awful attack they made on the Confederate fortress of Fort Wagner. Uh, and that attack, unfortunately, was a failure uh, in spite of the heroism of the troops. But it was the 39th Illinois that eventually successfully captured Fort Wagner uh, several months later. And in the Battle of Petersburg, the battle that finally broke Lee's army, uh, Henry Hardenberg, uh, a young man from Tinley Park, won the Congressional Medal of Honor. Uh, and it was the 39th Illinois that then pursued Lee's army uh, out of Petersburg and, for, and were part of the army that forced the surrender at Appomattox uh, that brought about the end of the war. And you can see they suffered pretty heavy. A regiment of soldiers has a thousand men. Uh, and out of the thousand men, uh, uh, they've suffered pretty high casualties with a very large number of simply from disease. Now, not everybody was a patriot in Chicago during the Civil War. That's for darn sure. Uh, and one of the people who uh, was most controversial was this fellow here, Wilbur F. Story. Story was the most brilliant journalist in Chicago. Uh, he really knew how to convey the news in a colorful fashion. Uh, once after he covered uh, an execution at Joliet State Prison, anybody ever been down the State Prison on Archer Road there? Uh, he covered the execution there. And so the headline in the, in the Chicago Times the next day was, Jerked to Jesus. <laughs> uh, he went ahead and also, however, was a bitter racist. And he said the most awful things about African Americans. Uh, and was a staunch defender of slavery as an institution. And a bitter enemy of Abraham Lincoln because Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. He heaped a mountain of purple prose upon the president after he did so. He didn't even like the Gettysburg Address. Uh, nothing Lincoln did was good enough for this guy. Uh, but on the other hand, one of the things that Wilbur Story did was he tried to defend civil liberties. He tried to defend people's right to say unpopular things in the course of a war. 
And while people called him traitor in some cases, others called him a hero because he would go ahead and uh, say those, uh, uh, defend the right of free speech. And he literally had to do that because the uh, he literally had to do that because Ambrose Burnside, who was the uh, commander of Union forces uh, behind the lines, he decided to close down the Chicago Times because they were attacking Lincoln too much. This is a complete violation of the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. Uh, and the only reason that Story's newspaper was allowed to reopen was because a mob of Democratic readers, people who opposed the Lincoln administration, took to the streets and they threatened to burn down a brand new Chicago Tribune, which was a Republican newspaper, the brand new Chicago Tribune building. And uh, the Tribune, in a panic, wired Abraham Lincoln and said, tell Burnside to open up the Times again before we lose our new building. Story played a huge role in the Democratic Party convention that was held in Chicago in 1864. That convention basically pursued a peace plank. They wanted to go ahead and end the Civil War, negotiate with the Confederacy, recognize the independence of the southern states, and abandon the Emancipation Proclamation. This was a very popular thing to say in the summer of 1864 with Grant's army stalled outside Richmond and Sherman stalled outside Atlanta. It looked like Lincoln's military effort was a failure. But fortunately, Union forces were able to turn the tide in the fall and Lincoln was reelected. That went ahead and really bothered the Confederate government. They knew they lost their best chance to win the war. And by that time, they were deeply involved with trying to subvert the North, particularly the Midwestern states that were so critical to Lincoln's war effort, subvert them internally. So they, for example, they paid for a whole series of candidates in the 1864 election in Illinois. Uh, so the biggest contributor was the Confederate government to the Democratic Party's war chest because the Democratic Party promised to negotiate with the South. And when that failed, they snuck secret agents into Chicago to try to liberate the thousands of Confederate soldiers who were imprisoned at Camp Douglas and use them to create an army behind, the line, behind Union lines to disrupt the flow of supplies coming out of Chicago. And the prisoners were organized. We have memoirs of Confederate prisoners. They had weapons hidden underneath their barracks. They were just waiting for the signal of the Confederate agents to attack the camp from the outside and they would rise up on the inside. But fortunately, the scheme was detected by the United States Secret Service and the conspirators were arrested or forced to flee to Canada. The racism that Wilbur Story expressed through the Chicago Times was shared by many people in Chicago. Uh, particularly many uh, new immigrants to the city who felt that they were, they were locked in the worst jobs in the city. And they feared African Americans coming to the city as equals. And they would have to compete for wages with them. 
Uh, and so during the Civil War, the first race riots occurred. And they occurred in situations where people were fighting for uh, unskilled labor jobs. And the great city council of Chicago uh, went ahead and stepped into this and decreed that Chicago schools should be legally segregated according to race. They tried to restrict all African Americans to one school. But African Americans who were in Chicago, and Chicago just had a small population of them, African Americans who were in Chicago uh, did go ahead and participate meaningfully in the conflict. Uh, the 54th Massachusetts, the famous uh, uh, regiment in movie Glory, uh, that was partially recruited in Chicago, even though it was given a Massachusetts title. But most interesting was the Douglas family. H. Ford Douglas uh, was a former slave from Virginia. Uh, he was a mulatto. Uh, so he was able to pass for white sometimes. He joined the Union Army before the Emancipation Proclamation, before it was legal for a black man to fight uh, uh, to end slavery. Uh, his wife was led a very important organization uh, that went ahead and tried to help what they called contrabands, African Americans who uh, fled from slavery uh, to the Union lines. Uh, and she tried to, to, help, uh, to help them. Uh, later, Douglas organized, uh, became an officer and organized his own artillery company. And he was a good friend of the more famous Frederick Douglass, the great uh, black abolitionist. Uh, and in 1863, in January, just after the Emancipation Proclamation was uh, uh, released, he wrote a letter to Frederick Douglass. Uh, and uh, just let me read that quickly. The slaves are free. How can I write these precious words? In anticipation of this result, I enlisted six months ago in order to better be prepared to play my part in the great drama of the Negro's redemption. I wanted its drill. I wanted its practical details. For mere theory does not make a good soldier. I've learned something of war, for I have seen war in its brightest as well as its bloodiest phase. And yet... I have nothing to regret, for since the stern necessities of this struggle have laid bare the naked issue of freedom on one side and slavery on the other, freedom shall have in this conflict, if necessary, my blood, as it had in the past my earnest words. This war will educate Mr. Lincoln out of his idea of deportation of the Negro quite as fast as some of his other pro-slavery ideas with respect to employing them as soldiers. You can see H. Ford Douglas didn't like the fact that Lincoln waited until 1863 to issue an Emancipation Proclamation, or that Lincoln advocated that uh, African Americans consider relocation to other places. H. Ford Douglas advocated, he felt he was an American and he wanted American citizenship rights. Now, there were a lot of people in Chicago who were making money during the Civil War. War is a great opportunity to do that. And they did not serve. So, Potter Palmer was a, was a man young enough to serve in the military. He didn't. Marshall Field, George Pullman, Philip Danforth Armour, Gustavus Swift. Just like the other big robber barons on the East Coast, Rockefeller, Carnegie. These people saw war as a good opportunity to make money, and they stayed home and made it. 
They laid foundations for the greatest fortunes in American history by staying home and reaping the profits. Chicago's biggest businessman was Cyrus McCormick, the alleged inventor of the reaper. He made agricultural machinery that made it easier for farmers to harvest their crops without large pool of labor. This conceivably would have been very helpful to the Union war effort. But during the Civil War, Cyrus McCormick sold most of his reapers in Europe. He was from Virginia. He was against Lincoln and the war effort. 1864, he ran for Congress based on we should negotiate with the Confederacy and give up the Emancipation Proclamation. He secretly negotiated with Confederate agents in Canada but conveniently burned all the letters after the war. So Chicago business people did not necessarily uh, uh, conduct themselves in the most glorious fashion. On the other hand, Chicago industry did play a key role in winning the war and in transforming Chicago. It was during the Civil War that Chicago became a big food processing and food byproducts industry center. And so many food products still come out of Chicago. Kraft Foods, Nabisco, you know, Oreos, <laughs> Ritz Crackers, uh, uh, Sara Lee. These things have their roots in the Civil War. The Chicago Union stockyards were founded during the Civil War because Chicago became the great pork packing center of the country uh, during the conflict. And that food, Chicago was the food distribution center for the country, is the reason why we have this great commodities market in Chicago. That's such a big part of Chicago's financial industry. Uh, and that, they began to trade futures in Chicago during the Civil War for the first time. And Chicago moved from being just a commercial center to an industrial center during the Civil War, with the number of factories in the city tripling during the war decade. Uh, and they did this because of the railroads. Chicago supplied the food for the Union Army because it had the railroad connections to where those troops were going, deep into the south. And they had to go ahead and constantly repair those railroads. They had to build rolling stock. They had to build engines. And this meant they needed to make steel in Chicago. There never was a steel rail made in the United States before they made one in Chicago during the Civil War. They had iron rails, but iron's not as strong as steel, and iron will wear out faster. So the steel industry in the United States has a significant, Chicago plays a significant role in its birth in America. Uh, and it's no accident that they rolled the first steel rail in the United States at Goose Island. Now they make beer there. But uh, in those days, they went ahead and made steel. They relocated that plant from Goose Island to the South Lakefront to Chicago. And it became the United States Steel Corporation's South Works plant. And, once for, and for many, many years, employing over 10,000 Chicago workers. George Pullman began the Pullman Standard Works during the Civil War. And again, another company that employed over 10,000 workers in Chicago. Finally, banking Secure banking played a key role in the development of Chicago as an industrial center. 
When the Civil War begins, there's only $100,000 on deposit in Chicago banks. Why? Because nobody trusted the banks. Banks issued their own phony currency. Banks, you could just set up a bank with no real secure deposits. And so people didn't trust the banks. During the Civil War, the Lincoln administration passed a series of banking laws that led to the issuing, for the first time, of paper national currency that people could trust. And uh, they would guarantee uh, the financial soundness of a series of national banks. National banking caught on in Chicago faster than anywhere else. So national banking begins in 1863. By 1865, there's 13 national banks in Chicago. And people trust these banks. They're backed by the government. And so they got $30 million on deposit. That's the kind of capital you need if you're going to build a factory. You can't have industry unless you can borrow large amounts of money. So the war transformed Chicago in profound ways. But it came at a terrible cost for our people. 22,000 Cook County men served in uniform. Uh, 15,000 from Chicago itself. 5,000 of whom don't come back. 20 Congressional Medals of Honor. Go to a place like Rose Hill Cemetery on Chicago's north side and you'll find many, many, many of the graves uh, of those Civil War soldiers from Cook County. But it's strange that we don't think of Chicago in terms of the Civil War. It's, it's largely forgotten in terms of, of our history. And it's in part because the city's a dynamic place. That each generation remakes Chicago uh, in its own image. The great Union stockyards uh, that were part of the legacy of the Civil War, where so many Southsiders worked for generations. My mom and dad met working in the Union stockyards. Doesn't sound very romantic. Uh, but it worked. <laughs> uh, they're all gone. All that's left of those stockyards is the gate. With the wigwam, this big convention hall that Chicago built, uh, where Abraham Lincoln was nominated to be president of the United States, where they had the first war rallies in Chicago. Didn't even make it through the Civil War. Burned down. Even the, the Grand Hall of the, of the Army of the Republic, the Civil War veterans organizations, uh, this was their place where they were going to meet. This is where they built a museum so they could tell people from future generations the story of their struggle. It's all closed. The museum doesn't even exist anymore. It's all locked up in storage. Even the First National Bank of Chicago has gone. There's no real Chicago banks anymore. You can see the first bank note issued by the First National Bank has a Union Army soldier bearing the American flag on it. Because that bank was tied to the Union war effort. But we still have these parks that bear, the, we still have these statues in the parks that witness the war. And I think we still see that legacy of the war in our racially divided communities. We still see the legacy of the war in the bustle of the trading pits uh, and the commodities exchange. We're still the city that came out of the Civil War, a great metropolis. And in that sense, the hand of the Civil War generation still rests on Chicago's shoulder.
Thank you, and be happy to answer any questions you may have. Just a commercial. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming. Thanks, Troy. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.